0: Hi! Welcome to Bipolar Bicoastal. I'm Anna. <laughs> and I'm Maria. We're twins living on opposite coasts. Here to talk about navigating life while bipolar. Welcome back, everyone. This is <laughs> Bipolar Bicoastal. I'm Anna. I'm Maria. Do we do this usually? Nope. <laughs> we okay. <do> <laughs> All right. Well, today. Yeah, so... I'm just going to start this episode by telling about why I had to leave camping early last weekend. It's a story that I've been sitting on for a week now, which is really hard for me to do and not tell Maria a story for yeah, a week, especially one like this. Yeah, we've talked like every day since, like, since then. So I've almost shared like five times. I'm like, just save <laughs> yeah. it for the podcast. All right. So the reason why I'm sharing a story is hopefully going to become apparent as I tell it, but this is going to... Also, fill in for the banter part, so if you don't get it in the beginning, that's fine, too. Okay, so last week, and a friend and I went camping, and we went camping on the eastern shore of Maryland, and our next-door neighbor was a guy and his wife in an RV who were, like, pretty obviously intoxicated the entire time. They were, like, middle-aged and had, like, Two vehicles an RV, a bunch of, like, Liberty, like, bumper stickers and stuff on their cars and their RV. And were, like, pretty obnoxious the whole time, but didn't, like, speak to us or anything like that. So we camped our Friday, like, no incident. And then, except for, like, them, like, maybe overhearing a conversation, like, making fun of it to themselves. But, like, nothing we could really, like, tell or figure out. And then the second night, it's 11 p.m. They've passed out. The guys has passed out. He was, like, drunker than his wife or his female companion. Mm-hmm. And at, like, 11, their RV had, like, this out, this speaker on it that was playing, like, the radio. So it was, like, commercials and songs just, like, playing into an otherwise completely silent, like, campground. Mm. And we were in a tent, not an RV, so we couldn't, like, close the door and not hear it. We were just, like, there And for those wondering why we were in a tent, we, like, thought that we were in a tent spot. It was an RV spot, which is just us paying more for something. That's not something we're doing wrong in case someone wants to blame us for that. But so my friend went to go knock on the door and the person like never answer no one came out they knocked like three or four times and then so i went over with them and i knocked and i was like hello like is anyone there and the guy opened up he was very angry and he was like what do you want and we we're like can you just turn off your radio and he's like well i'm allowed to have lights on in my rv i'm like well that's, we don't mind the lights that's fine it's just that the radio is still playing and he was like why are you coming over on my property yelling at me telling His me property. what to do or like my like, I don't know if he's a property. Like his like trailer, like telling me what to do. Oh like you have no right, just screaming at us, and we were like, okay, he like, could you please turn the radio off? And he was like, fine. And so they went back to our tent and got inside, and he started yelling about us to his wife and being like, those. Content warning, like, offensive, like, slurs. Those dykes are trying to tell me what to do. Oh, my God. Fuck them. Like, their liberal asses are trying like, I'm going to, like, go over there and fuck up their car. Fuck them up. Like, and his wife was, like trying to like calm him down the whole time and being like it's okay like you're not gonna go hurt them you're not gonna do anything and it was like to me it was like this guy has a gun he's gonna kill us like that was like my thinking it was like we were in a tent my friend's car was right there but we had to like get out of the tent like be visible to him and then get into the car or he could just come over and like get into our tent and like hurt us like it was like we just sat there like completely silent like holding each other's hands and being like "Fuck! like this is so scary and like that went on for like probably like 10 minutes like five to 10 minutes and we're like okay we can't call anyone because then he would hear us like we can't yeah do anything so we were just like okay like we're gonna wait and like when it feels safe we can get out and pack up the tent and just go and like luckily the rest of our stuff was packed up so after like 10 minutes he got quiet but it was like unclear if he had gone back into his rv or not and we're just like okay like let's just try to get out and like without him hurting us or like trying to like fuck up your car and so we got out he was sitting in like a chair facing our lot with like Like, just staring at us and, like, yelling things as we, like, packed up our tent. And we, oh like, God. just, like, packed up in, like, under, like, two minutes probably and, like, got out of there and just, like, threw everything in the car um and just, like, disassembled it and threw it in the car. And, like, it's a pretty easy tent to pack up and, like, blah, blah. But it was really fucking scary. And so on the way driving out, I tried Ugh. to call the park ranger, like, police to be, like, you should kick this person out of, like. yeah ever being allowed to camp again, especially around young women. He does not deserve that privilege and couldn't get through anyone. Like, all the numbers were either, like, no one was answering or, like, not in service. And it was also unclear from, like, searching, like, to find anyone. And then eventually the next day I managed to get through to someone And, like, reported it to, I guess, the park police or, like, maybe, like, the police police. I'm not sure. And told what happened. But that's, like, one of those times where, like, this is is where it comes back is, like, I had Mm to contact the police about it. And I felt really bad because his wife had done nothing wrong. I'm, like, I tried to make it very apparent. But it seemed like a situation where if the husband found out – or if the – sorry, I'm assuming their husband and wife. If the guy had found out that his female partner, like – like, that something had been reported, he would probably hurt his female part. Like, I just didn't know. Like, it didn't seem like a situation yeah. for her to be in. Like, I'm sure, like getting authorities involved usually makes things worse for survivors of abuse, not better. Like, if it's not by yeah. their choice and stuff like that, and even if it is by their choice often. So if they're staying in that situation, and even if they're not, honestly, police are generally useless. But I just wanted this person to not be allowed to, like, be on state parks anymore. Yeah. And it was just really scary. Like, I thought I was going to die. And I know that sounds like dramatic but there was no way of knowing if he had a gun or not and he was so oh. angry and no one did anything about it Was the other hard part like perhaps they couldn't hear but I have a very hard time believing that yeah I mean I've definitely been in situations where I've heard like what could have been like physical disputes I haven't done anything about it and i like, can yeah. not really questioning that but I also like would never have wanted like two other like young women to like have come over and gotten involved so it's like made them less safe I don't know yeah. so it was really not good and like honestly traumatic and it's been like not a fun week for a lot of reasons but that being one of them another obviously the other ones being that a black man was shot seven times in the back in front of three of his kids by police and that three protesters were shot two of them killed for protesting police violence which we'll just call like policing because that's what policing is it's violence and yeah it was just like Not a good week for, I'm sure, a lot of people, but that was one of the reasons why it was hard for me. Aww. I'm really glad we got out of there safely, but and I'm really thankful to my friend for driving me back up to Baltimore and then down to their house in D.C., but it was really, really scary. And, yeah, just a situation where Mm. we need to have better systems in place for people who are in danger. That's so scary, Nanners. I'm sorry. Yeah, it really fucking sucked. And, like, I feel like everyone's... I don't know. Like, I don't know how to, like, tell the story in a way that, like, adequately conveys, like... How terrifying it was. Yeah, how much I thought that we were not gonna make it out of there, like, unharmed. That was a possibility at one point. Like, I was like, we're just gonna have to sit awake in our tent all night or, like yeah and i'd already taken this is like another like bipolar mm, problem i'd already yeah. taken my medication so i was like so tired on the way back and i felt so bad but i like when i was like getting and like unpacking at like 1 a.m i was like i don't even know if i got any of my stuff because i'm like literally like walking to sleep right now Aww. um but yeah it sucked and uh, i Ugh. don't advise that anyone go camping on the eastern shore during, of maryland um, of Maryland uh, during election season. Just don't go into conservative areas if you look different and are like a sitting duck in those situations. It sucks, but I don't think it's a safe thing to do right now, so. How crappy is it that August 30th is already election season? I mean, I think it's just, like, in general. Yeah. Sorry, I'm chewing ice. But, um... (laughs) Yeah, it was... It's really scary. I never had to, like thing like my safety when camping before, and I get it like an immense yeah. privilege, but I think it's also because I've only ever gone camping with men before, like, at least, like, yeah, like our dad or, like, partners in the past, and it's very different, especially when you look like a gay couple, <laughs> which we do, yeah. when we, like, are, like, you know, sharing a tent and stuff like that, so. Was your friend okay? Were they nervous? Oh, Sammy, I think, handled it better than I did, but it was just as, like... Freaked out by the situation. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I hope they're doing okay. If you're listening, Sammy. Oh yeah, that's the front of the name. He's Sammy. Um, but yeah, it sucked. So yeah, that was the story that I said for the podcast. So, ugh, what a, once again? What a joy to be sitting on. <laughs> I know. Oh. Uh, okay. So then last week we shared the episode of me talking about my. Involuntary hospitalization at the hands of the police. I'll just say that the police were the ones who put me into the ambulance, and I'm gonna be a little bit more like explicit about that part right now. It was like not a good experience. My family, Maria, had called a mental health crisis hotline and they advised her, right, Mia, to call the police. Is that right? No, I didn't call the police. I called 911 like for the hospital. Yeah, but 911 goes to. Yeah, but, like, I didn't realize that at the time. Like, I wasn't, like... No, 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 but I'm just saying, like, that was their, like, advice in the hotline, right, was, like, to call an emergency line. Yeah, to, like, yeah, for you, so that you could be hospitalized right so the problem is that in a lot of communities in fact most communities in america is when you call that hotline the police are the first responders and they come out when someone is like a danger to themselves or others because in theory they make situations less dangerous but in this situation and in most situations i would argue they make things more dangerous so yeah in this situation i was like doing okay not great but okay like i wasn't hurting other people at this point when they came. And when then they came into room and I was completely naked. So I had to, like, people had to get them out of the room. They did not want to be taken out of the room. Like, if I was not, like, a white person with a white family, I don't think it would have... And in a very, like, affluent neighborhood, I don't think it would have gone the same way. I think I would have been carried out of there naked, honestly. And uh, Maria was able to, like, convince them to get out of the room and give me clothes and convince me to put them on. And I was... Forcibly detained, put into handcuffs and carried by all four limbs by like four police officers, four grown men, kicking and screaming down my stairs and almost forced into an ambulance because I wasn't complying with their orders, which is a ludicrous ask for someone who was undergoing a psychotic episode who's experiencing physical violence being put onto them. Sorry, Nannis, when you say being almost forced into the ambulance, do you mean almost? Or the, like the cop yeah, car, the, right? the squad car, right, yeah. sorry. And the only way that I was able to do it is, like, somehow, and I probably, I'm just going to credit Maria for this, it's, like, I was able to, like, put that together, that there was an option besides being go- going into a cop car to the hospital, yeah. that, like, if I, like, stopped for a second, and this, like, happened several times during, like, my... Involuntary, like yeah. my commitment to a psych ward that I was able to like put two and two together, like, oh, like this behavior is like causing yeah. this effect. So in that yeah. case, it was like, okay, like I need to calm myself down, which again, a ridiculous ass for someone who's going to do a psychotic yeah. episode, so I can be transported as someone who was unwell and sick in an ambulance as opposed to someone who is a danger to society in a squad car. So yeah, and I would have been taken by myself <laughs> to the hospital, which would have been even more dramatic. so i was taken in, in an ambulance maria was able to come with me she was still they, detained in the ambulance i mean it's not like you were like, no i was <laughs> yeah. i was um i was handcuffed i was they may have took my handcuffs off at one point i can't remember and i yeah, mean either um i'm not sure if they gave me any drugs in the ambulance either i don't have a memory of that but there were like people who had some empathy for someone going through a mental health crisis there which was mm-hmm. helpful mm-hmm. and i like really think those ambulance workers one in particular I don't remember like their name or anything like that but who was very like kind to us during that journey um, which was not like a thing that we were given before that and then I was uh, taken into the hospital and put into like a holding room until they could assign me somewhere or something i don't know why it, like to always takes so long yeah but during that time another person undergoing a mental health crisis who is not a white person not a young white female but instead Maybe young, actually, I'm not sure, but, like, person of color was having an episode or, like, yelling in the hallway, and I was left by myself with no explanation in my room, and I'm sure everyone else who was also, like, waiting to be put into the psych ward was, and all of the staff, <laughs> including, like, at least 10 security people, some of whom had weapons. All of them had weapons, actually. We can probably assume we're in the hallway, just lining the hallway on both sides. So scary. So scary, like, monitoring the person. Like, it was not, like, it's completely unclear why that they needed that many people for an unarmed person who was, like, sick and why they needed so many, like, people with weapons and all these things and why no one had any way of, like, trying to de-escalate the situation. All everyone was doing was escalating the situation um which led me then which i mean i think that when i tell people a story they don't think like they're like oh well you chose to do that but led me in order to get anyone to like explain to me what was going on or like listen to me or like give me like any reason why i couldn't see my family which like up to that point i've been having like one visitor come back and then leave and then one visitor and it's like i was like like, why is that stopping and and i don't know i have no idea why either like it stopped because of that it stopped because they like where, like, it's a high-security situation, and yeah. i all have to be taking care of this person. So I, like, threw a chair to try to get my behavior to match the level of urgency that the other person's was. And is that a decision I would have made when I wasn't manic? I don't know. But it was a decision based in some sort of logic because that was, like, the behavior that was getting attention. Yeah. And they came, they, like, um, restrained me and explained what was happening, and I eventually get to see someone, I think, sooner than I would have otherwise now right, i'd this... also like to say you, you didn't it's not as though you threw the chair at somebody no i was in a room yeah. by myself i threw it at yeah. a wall yeah. and like not even like, like to the floor like it was just to like get some attention right So yes. i'd ask them before like can someone tell me what's going on and no one was talking to me mm-hmm. so all of that to say <laughs> i don't think the police were helpful in that situation i don't think no. that um being involuntarily hospitalized saved me any amount of trauma in fact every time i'd like talked to my bipolar disorder afterwards like to therapists and stuff like that it or like anyone I cried during like the high like it yeah. took me like so many retellings yeah. to stop like being triggered by like that story the fact that I yeah. got through it now on this podcast is just like a testament to how many times I've had to relive that yeah. and like neutralize it in my head it was the worst yeah. night of my life, by far, the worst night of my family's life, I assume. Like, it was not good. And Yeah, that would be the worst night of my life. I would, yeah, probably. I and, put that there. Um, yes, and I think there are a lot of different ways that night could have gone if there were different structures in place. Yeah. Different people called, different models of care taken. And so that's kind of what we wanted to talk about is this theory that's been like, tossed around a lot recently of abolition and um the idea of deinstitutionalization mm-hmm. and having that not be the go-to response when someone is experiencing yeah. a crisis that we call nine one one. basically yeah. so we just want to establish that we are pro police and the carceral state abolition in general like as radical mm-hmm. as you can imagine that's us but we're going to focus specifically on people who are suffering some mental illness and severe mental illness because that's the scope of this podcast and we, we don't want it to be like too broad that sort just anytime that we talk about people with mental, mental illness you can like extrapolate to everybody but we're just going to focus on that for the purposes of this podcast right yep and like also we want to say like obviously we're two like young mm-hmm. white women talking yep. about cis white women who are yep. talking about um mental illness, it's a very different experience mm-hmm. for people, for Black men in particular, mm-hmm. but for Black yeah. women as well, and it shows that maybe in different ways, but obviously, like, that story could have gone so differently if I was yes. someone who was unhoused, or someone in, like, in any other situation, yeah. so. Yeah, and two of our prior guests, who are both young white women as well, have been and voluntarily, Hospitalized, and that would be Maddie Luderin, who you can find her episodes, and then Maggie Faust. So, if you're looking Mm -hmm. for more stories, they're in those episodes as well. Yes, and those were voluntary, but it was still a really traumatic experience for both of them. So, okay, so, and then the other thing we wanted to say is when we were doing this research, a lot of the problems that we found with Mm -hmm. it was that we were reading theory and solutions and identification of the problems from people who don't have mental illness and who had never Mm -hmm. been in that system and if Mm -hmm. they had been it was from a provider perspective not from someone who has ever experienced psychosis or who's ever experienced a mental health crisis that was that was not the lens that they were seeing them from so Mm -hmm. I had to deal with reading language I'm sure Maria you too that was like awful Yeah, or, like, people with, like, mental illness acted in, like, erratic ways in public, and it was really scary for, like, all the non-mentally ill people to see, and it's, like, wow, what a way to phrase, like, you know, like, people's discomfort with, like, other people's discomfort and lens to see non-violent behavior as violent and as a threat instead of just as, like, oh, someone is sick, what can I do to help, or, like, do they need help? my help in yeah. any way yeah probably not they probably don't but like your response shouldn't be yeah. like this is upsetting to me to see and should be like i'm upset for that person how can i help them that's a compassionate response i would say yeah. as opposed to like what i was reading yeah and we have stats to back all this up so mm-hmm. we also tried to i at least try to find articles and Mm-hmm. studies by people who are people of color and i think i somewhat succeeded with that but again like there's not as much as there should be especially then with this topic which so disproportionately yeah. affects people of color and then my last caveat just to get it out there is that obviously when we're talking about people with severe mental illness there's that but they people right can be mentally ill and part of other marginalized groups so it's like right you can again like anything we're saying about people with mental illness They might also be, like, people of color and sex workers and experiencing homelessness and, like, all this stuff. Yeah. People can have severe mental illness and use drugs, but the two are not the same and everything. And then my last, sorry, my last definition is that when we say severe mental illness, at least me, I'm talking about people who have experienced psychosis or are experiencing psychosis. Yeah. Yeah. Or, like, um, a danger to themselves or others. Or others. So, like, suicidality would also fall into that. Another thing I want to say is we're not going to be talking about people who are disabled in other ways. That, like, really comes up a lot when you're talking about deinstitutionalization back in the 60s, but Mm -hmm. we're not going to touch that because that's not our frame of reference and I don't feel comfortable speaking on it. Mm -hmm. And that would be a whole different episode anyways, honestly, but Mm -hmm. that is another population that's been affected by this, so that's something to keep in mind. But basically what we wanted to see is that oftentimes – mental health professionals see therapy or institutionalization putting people into institutions is a solution without considering whether people have access to resources whether or not someone Mm -hmm. wants those things and even thinking out what the goals of those treatments are Mm -hmm. we'll talk more about like or at least i think i'm touching this later that like what um some of the goals of the deinstitutionalization movement were back in the 60s and stuff like that but the problem isn't that people are mentally ill. The problem mm-hmm. is our society. Like, that is the main thing that we want to get across all of this. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot that goes into it where it's, like, the idea of these goals and treatments is to, like, incapacitate people or, like, or make them more productive or make them yeah. easy, more compliant and easier to deal with. and. I think we've accepted that for a lot of populations that that is not an acceptable goal mm-hmm. and we haven't gotten there with mental illness really and we also a lot of people haven't gotten there with other populations so again speaking about young black students like a yep. lot of the education system is set up to make them more compliant, more restrained and that's not treatment <laughs> like that is like for the benefit mm-hmm. of the person and the society who is in that population, it's not for the benefit of those people themselves. Let's get into it. So we're just going to go into some stats really quickly so that we have some concrete numbers to back up more of the the claims that we're making. The claims yeah. that we're making. Yeah. Yeah. So my first is that 6.3% of the U.S. population suffers from severe mental illness. We're not mm-hmm. talking about a tiny portion of people here. That's a huge number. Mm-hmm. So they come from all walks of life. It's many people who are not diagnosed now can be diagnosed later in life. It's not something that people grow out of. I just wanted to get that out there. 16% of the total population in prisons and jails are people with severe mental illness. Mm-hmm. And this one is not specific to mental illness, but up to 50% of people murdered by the police have disabilities. Yeah. And so going off of that... Mm-hmm. The number of people who experience violence in institutions and psychiatric settings, there are high rates of reported lifetime trauma that occurred within those psychiatric settings, including 31% of people, this is self-reporting, but 31% of people experience physical assault, 8% experience sexual assault. I would posit Mm. that that number is very low, just from my own experience working with survivors of sexual assault. Yeah. And 63% witness traumatic events. So... Even, I, I know that we all live, like, not all of us, but a um, bunch of us experience live pretty privileged lives. But if any of you have seen trauma or, like, have watched those videos yeah. of people dying at the hands of police, I think that you can imagine, like, how upsetting that would be in person to see something like that. Yeah. And the reported rates of potentially harmful experiences, such as being around frightening or violent mm-hmm. patients, was 54%, which is also very high. Yeah. Also reported rates of... Institutional measures of last resort, such as seclusion, that was fifty nine percent. Restraint, awful. thirty, right? Awful. Restraint, thirty four percent. Takedowns, which is when like you are like physically taken down, was twenty nine percent. And handcuff transport was sixty five percent. So these are just people who have been in psychiatric settings, not necessarily people who are involuntarily hospitalized. Yeah, I know. So these are people. So the fact that sixty five percent of them have been in handcuff transport—that mm-hmm. just and yep. that. People who are in, like, a voluntary hospitalization setting, like, not the highest security, are also witnessing this kind of trauma at those rates is not okay. (laughs) Yeah. And, sorry, and it also compounds any mental illness they're already going through, like. Well, yeah, that's the thing. You have PTSD now, so, like. (laughs) Well, yeah. Well, yeah, you were saying, like, oh, only 16% of, well, not 16, but only, but 16% of people in um, prisons have a severe mental illness I would argue that's probably closer to 100% because they've all experienced yeah that's using psychosis as the measure I should clarify okay yeah oh interesting okay yeah. so and then having after these things things like having medications use as threat or punishment mm-hmm. unwanted sexual advances in a psychiatric setting awful inadequate privacy all everyone in a cycle has inadequate yeah. privacy and sexual assault by a staff member were associated with a history of exposure to sexual assault as an adult so we're causing problems as we claim to solve them the other thing i want to just say is like yep having medications used as our punishment saw that i can't speak to sexual advances but i can say that i was called a bitch by another patient in um, a psych ward and told that it was my fault for Um, being around that person it was their culture to treat women that way so I shouldn't be upset by that inadequate privacy everyone's experience like I said um and in terms of I obviously was um experienced handcuff transport I was obviously restrained I was um you know punished for things that well punished is a strong word I wasn't like it wasn't like back on the day when like I was like I don't know like Uh, stripped naked or something but i was like scolded and chastised for things that were just like symptoms of my disorder or someone who wanted answers to things they weren't getting answers to like what time it was or um uh like when things were happening yeah it was also very in one of the wealthiest counties in the world it was a very underfunded department or if it wasn't underfunded it seemed that way because they didn't have things like a working DVD player. So instead of um, this, is a, this is in watching... 2018. Like, this is not... Yeah. Or 20... yeah. 2018? Yeah, 2018. 2017. Winter 2017. So instead of watching, like, a movie, yeah. like, as we were supposed to, according to, like, the schedule that we had, which was a joke, we instead, <sighs> um watch the news which is again traumatizing and if you guys remember during like winter 2017 trump was about to inaugurate it so not fun to watch so i wanted to speak about the idea of mental ill people who are mentally ill who are victims of violence versus perpetrators so most people with mental illness are not violent and only three to five percent of violent acts i'm going to say reported violent acts could be attributed to individuals living with a serious mental illness in fact People with severe mental illnesses are over 10 times more likely to be victims of violent mm-hmm. crime, crime than the general population. And our stats are all coming from good sources. We'll put them into the show notes. If you're on yeah. Apple Podcasts listening, go to a different platform or the show notes or go to our Facebook page. It's not yeah. going to fit them all in. It's like the very small amount of characters allowed on Apple Podcasts, but that's from yeah. our government website. So these aren't like – we're not finding like stats from like <laughs> – people who are working to end this issue it's just people who are reporting statistics on these things and we didn't go into this being like like all the numbers i saw were so much higher than i thought they would be Mm -hmm. do you know what i mean um and i the ones that people in psych words i was like shocked by all right you ready yeah so maria is now going to talk about what the goals of abolition Mm -hmm. um have been so um, with all the Black Lives Matter stuff that's been happening this summer, um, I'm sure that you all have heard of like the eight to abolish the police. It's a great resource. It'll be in the show notes. Like I would highly recommend reading it. But it was came up as a counter to the eight can't wait campaign, which is offering reforms instead of abolition. So mm-hmm. Anne and I are working from an abolitionist framework. And we're working with the understanding that institutionalization period is the issue and it's a continuum, right? So prisons, mm-hmm. far end of the continuum, but state and private hospitals, not much better. So basically the goals of abolition and alternative police and the ways that you get there are defunding police, obviously defunding to zero, demilitarizing communities. So again, I'm just going to touch on the things I have to do specifically with mental health. So removing cops from hospitals like there's cops in anna's hospital and Mm -hmm. also at this point uh law enforcement can access private patient information that should Mm -hmm. not be possible um remove police from schools free people from jails and prisons so freeing people from involuntary confinement including but not limited to jails prisons um immigrant detention centers psych wards and nursing homes, starting with the most vulnerable co- populations, such as aging, disabled, immunocompromised, um, held on bail, held p- parole violations, and survivors of whatever type of abuse or trauma. And we've seen with everything that's happening with COVID, yep. how important it is yep. that we have that framework because people are literally being murdered by the yep. state because they have been institutionalized for things like becoming old in a society that's not set up to take care of the elderly. Yep for for things like crossing a border into another country being you know taken by someone else across the border into their country yep just wanting to have a home or anything like that those are not things that you should have a death sentence for and certainly they're not things that the state gets to decide that you deserve to die for absolutely so number five is repealing laws that criminalize survival Mm-hmm. Again, the ones that literally most explicitly to severe mental illness are any local ordinances that criminalize the occupation of public spaces, particularly for people experiencing homelessness. There's also laws against loitering, loitering for the purposes of sex work, panhandling, soliciting, camping, just sleeping, public urination, and defecation. As someone who's worked in the homelessness space, it's horrendous that people mm-hmm. would rather criminalize People who are experiencing homelessness, specifically people who are sleeping outside, which is a small portion of people who are homeless. And that can't be our solution anymore. It's not tenable and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then number six is invest in community self-governance. That would look like people who have mental illness making decisions about what people with mental illness should be treated, um, how they should be treated. Seven, provide safe housing for everyone and make public housing available to everyone, um, repealing any laws that bar people from Accessing public housing for you know perhaps being taken to jail for mental illness or health crises or for living outside or or anything like that. And mm-hmm. then lastly, which- oh wait, I want to say one of the other things that you had written down the idea of repurposing empty buildings, houses, apartments, yeah. and hotels to house people experiencing homelessness. again, something that's become so easy so, common sense during COVID. But yeah. it is not happening, not yes. on a large scale, only in very small radical actions by people around the country. So, and then lastly, investing in care, not cops. So all this stuff is worth reading into mm-hmm. by POC who came up with it. But I just wanted to put those out there because I think that there's a lot of misinformation about what the actual issues are, and and I think a lot of people like to make the solutions seem a lot more difficult and untenable Mm -hmm. than they actually are, but a lot of it just requires a reframing and uh, a bit of imagination, honestly. Okay, so Anna, you want to go into kind of the history of uh, institutionalization? Yeah, and I also wanted to add, like, we get called naive a lot when we're talking about things like that, Mm -hmm. that it's unrealistic and things like that, but what should be unrealistic is a society where we have the resources to help everyone who needs help, and we choose instead to lock them up take away their ability to make any no. decisions for themselves and their free will and we call that for the better good of society that is that does yeah. not create a society that i think any of us want to be existing in right now mm-hmm. and the problem that we'll get into when i'm talking about the history is that reform doesn't address yeah. the core belief that people are entitled to humane treatment and they're entitled yep. to as much help as we can give them um it instead operates under the same framework and premise of incarceration and institutionalization yep. which is that it's safer for our society to have certain populations yep. taken out of it and that's just not possible and i'll touch on this very briefly now i guess it's also not fair to the people who are then in charge of responding in those situations so this is not to like have empathy for the police for how they act but i i will speak about things like um social workers and nurses in like psych units it's really dehumanizing to view yourself as above or different from the people that you're treating yeah they're under resourced they're understaffed and even if they had the proper resources their sole goal would still be to pacify the populations not Look at them as complex human beings with complex yeah. needs, and they're they feel scared, which is very normal reaction yeah. when you are forcing people to yeah. conform to rules against their will. That you would that you would f- feel scared about the consequence of that. So yeah, there are like different like meme pages that have popped up that have been really upsetting to me about things like um, the workers in those situations just completely dehumanizing their patients and talking about. Um, you know, a lot of gallows humor about the, their times in those wards and um, how uh, insubordinate and noncompliant their patients yeah. are. And it's just like a very um, sad thing to look at for them. It's infuriating yeah. on my end, but it's also very sad. And it's not fair that we're asking them to do that job. So, yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I would say it's naive to believe that reforms are the things that we're currently doing are working and our solutions to the problem. Yeah. All right, go ahead, Anna. Let's go. The big deinstitutionalization movement in America happened in, like, the 50s, 60s, the 70s. It is something that allegedly came about because of three different factors. So, the narrative is that there was shifting public opinion around it through things like exposés, like Dorothea Dixon, who went to the psych ward and, like, as a patient, I think, and, like, wrote down what was happening, and that... Led to the idea of nicer mental hospitals instead of asylums, which is not again a solution, and then there was also policy changes such as the creation of Medicaid and social security disability insurance, which shifted funding from state to federal, which oftentimes is better funded. It made a big difference for um, enabling community living and community mental health to become a possibility. Mm -hmm. But it also was also during a time when neoliberalism was really present and the idea of taking it away from public hospitals to privatizing them. Yeah. So cutting the budget for the state and then... The last thing was the advent of psychiatric drugs, um, especially Thorazine. But again, this just made patients quieter and easier yep. to manage. It didn't make them better. I think a really like good way of thinking of it that I read was like a chemical straitjacket. So mm-hmm. in 1955, the state mental health population was 559,000, which mm-hmm. was nearly as large on a per capita basis as the prison population today. But by 2000, it had fallen to fewer than one hundred thousand a drop of more than eighty two percent, but we're still dealing with this problem. So obviously the solution yeah. did not work to solve this problem. And the other thing I would say is that the system is meant to still meant to enforce like segregation, confinement, and yeah. incapacitation. It's not meant to promote healing. If it was, people wouldn't be spending the majority of their lives in these places are coming and from yeah. them, like the robot life. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, and then I have like a really long quote that I wanted. All right. This is a quote from Dr. Liet Ben Moshi. And I apologize if I said any of that incorrectly, but. Um, she's the one whose article I used to, to talk about the history of it. So, and I quote, "...in the hegemonic discourse, mental illness is seen as analogous to danger. For example, in connection with mass shooters or bad Muslim terrorists, and therefore containment and segregation are legitimized, as those labeled as mentally ill are seen as posing a danger to themselves or others. These claims are entirely unfounded and have been rebuked by scholars and MAD activists. That's a um, radical group of activists who self identify as MAD. But they still form the basis of current commitment laws and prevailing media narratives, creating moral panics around the figure of the mentally ill as mm-hmm. dangerous, especially through a racialized and gender prism. As the lone bat apple, the mentally ill is is a white man. As inherently depraved due to group association or background, the terrorist is sick and non-normative and also male. So that is how people justify segregating the mentally ill and hopefully our statistics earlier and just talking about it has kind of shifted the idea that mentally ill people are the danger and instead Mm -hmm. focus on all the violence that we enact upon them as a society. And Can kind of help shift our thinking that, you know, our response to people doing things like in Kenosha, um, a militia member, that's a, sorry, a terrorist, a white male terrorist. Yeah. And acting in a racist way to kill protesters is not him being mentally ill. It's actually a person making choices (laughs) based on an ideology of hate and violence. And that being the very, very logical next step of the society that you've created that valorizes and idealizes, you know, the cop and the person who enforces the law. And we need to really, really, um, I think the word in the theory is like queer that idea the idea that um queer the law and queer the idea of like we're enforcing the law because that just leads to really really awful consequences for all of us including Mm -hmm. the not mentally ill if you need to have it put as not just a humanitarian issue but an issue that affects you personally sure does Mm -hmm. okay so these are a lot of problems the solutions the Eight to abolish stuff is a really good place to start for solutions, but I want to mm-hmm. kind of focus in a little bit more in terms of like actually treating mental illness as well because mental illness is something that people who are suffering from it we can acknowledge that it is like an illness, and so there are in fact solutions to to actually treating the illness beyond just deinstitutionalizing people so mm-hmm. let's imagine that we've deinstitutionalized everybody. How do we then treat mental illness because? As Anna and I are, like, maybe our catchphrase at this point is, like, hospitalization is bad, but sometimes necessary. And now I want to, in this particular world, in this society, in, in America at this moment, that is true. But now I want us to move to ways to get people treatment and help and diagnoses beyond w- beyond hospitalization. Yeah. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that have to happen in order for people to live f- full lives with mental illness. One thing is having a rapid response so the first kind of two to five years after your first psychosis or your first bout of psychosis so that can happen in schizophrenia um bipolar disorder many other illnesses you have to catch it kind of early or it's it's good to catch it early and immediately begin treatment let's define treatment for these purposes as medication and also talk therapy which can encompass many many things Mm -hmm. can i also add as treatment like community support in your life people mm-hmm. in your life and uh, all of your basic needs being met so yeah. access to like resources too so in the u.s specifically there's not many beds available in these institutions there's not mm-hmm. many people who are trained to deal with mental illness, social workers, therapists, psychiatrists, anybody who's tried to see a psychiatrist or a therapist in an urban center or in a rural area can tell you how difficult it is to find somebody who, A, takes your insurance if you have insurance, B, has availability, and C, has availability at any time that's convenient for you, and then, like, the, like, the, whatever, four or five other criteria of, like, actually having any expertise in your illness, or, like, you, like, or you even... trusting them yep. and, like, yep. and like getting along with them. And even, like, I'll bring it back in, like, if mm-hmm. you're from a different entity, like, if you're a yeah. person of color and you want to speak to yeah. a person who shares that entity, it's really hard to access. Yeah. So in this new world, which we can create, there has to be a critical mass of people who are able and willing to respond in community-based ways. And then... We can agree that there are levels of risk, right, with each patient. So, managing uh, it's called acuity, which I never heard before. But basically, yeah, yeah, basically, we need to make sure that there is an ability to manage and to treat people who are at those crisis points and and may or may mm-hmm. not be a danger to themselves and others. So, again, like finding people and staff and training them. To react in, in ways that de-escalate these situations and get the highest quality of care as soon as possible is completely necessary in order to reimagine a world in which severe mental illness is not a debilitating ongoing issue for people. And then they also talk about role clarity. So this gets into the weeds a little bit, and I'm honestly like not an expert, but at this point, there's state hospitals versus like privately owned hospitals. There's different amounts of funding and care towards people experiencing mental illness in either of those places mm-hmm. this person in this paper says there has to be kind of distinct kind of path and role that facilities that for like more acute mental illness can go to so there's many ideas for community alternatives but one that i really like is community-based care so people who are suffering from psychosis etc living amongst each other but in kind of like a way that centers those people and their humanity versus a medical setting and so that would mean like in the 1970s they developed in california those sataria model of crisis houses have you heard of this anna no i haven't okay so basically their idea and what they did was minimal medication use a non-hierarchical residential treatment setting for people. And this was, like, first-onset psychosis and crisis. So they had that, Mm -hmm. like, extremely specific niche that they could handle. um, And then they did that well. So acknowledging that it's not a one-size-fits-all solution, Yeah. did Anna need to be in the most high-security unit or not? Yeah. Was there an option for someone to have, like, come to the house... Yeah. ...giving me a dose of medication monitored me there or like had you guys be informed about how to like monitor me there and like perhaps like kind of like an outpatient program which I much more so enjoyed than you know yeah time instead of having an hour maybe a day where I got to speak to friends and family yeah and I think another thing to like really hone in on is once people receive the proper medication it's Mm -hmm. quick to when they're like back to being able to like function in I don't want to say proactive way, but, like, just a a way that's, like, not a crisis point. And I think that we need to get away from this revolving door idea where people are, like, they need to, like, constantly be monitored and, like, blah, 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 blah. Because, like, that's not the case. We, We do have medication now that can really help people. And... Let me go into my next one. So, Mm -hmm. basically, there's incredibly uneven implementation of all these programs. Very few countries have even tried or started to address any of this stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. Norway is one. The UK is other. You can go look those up if you want. Um, We're talking specifically about the US, the United States of America. And as many people know, and Anna and I are going to do an episode on later later this year, (laughs) healthcare in America is not... Forthcoming. ...is not universal. And so... People can't... I mean, it sounds so obvious, but people can't access treatment, right? If they don't have health care and they don't have health insurance. Yeah. Can I do a quick anecdote? Yeah, go for it. So when I was in my... Um, I think I'm already set the box for that. I was in my outpatient program. Yeah. Sorry, my partial hospitalization program. Can you, Anna, can you explain briefly what an outpatient program is? Yeah, let me clarify. Mine was a partial hospitalization program at PHP. I don't know if that's different than outpatient. This mm-hmm. was, like, it was at a hospital, but... And we we're expected to be there like mm-hmm. for those yeah. like I think eight hours a day when it was happening, mm-hmm. but I could have just stopped showing up and there wouldn't like as a zero I, I think so, yeah. So yeah. I got to like opt in or opt out, which I opted in. So there was in group therapy, there was well in the group, but there was we had group therapy and there was this woman who was also i think bipolar she started out pretty stable and then like her condition deteriorated as the week went on because she was a veteran so she was trying to get care through the va and they were very slow to send her medication so she started out at a point where she could probably have taken care of herself and then by the end was full-on manic and and was, a, how long was it like it was a matter of weeks right it was like a week yeah yeah it's, it, was it, not it's even, it, quit, it was not yeah. even two weeks yeah and There were other things that I saw there that really, really made me think that our current way of dealing with mental Mm illness is not okay. You know, there were people who were – was a person who was bankrupt because of his mania and was Mm -hmm. now having to deal with that while depressed because he was also bipolar. And that's – I mean, I would be very, very surprised if he wasn't feeling suicidal throughout all this. Most people in the place just wanted to be able to sleep. Like, it was really hard finding the correct – medication that would help them sleep like that was the main thing i was very lucky with like how effective my medication was and how fast i was able to get the right dose but it wasn't impossible obviously nope and this is not to say that the va is the wrong solution i think that is that it gets a very bad rap because um it is one of the largest social services that we have as a country is the va and we don't fund it properly obviously we underfund it purposefully it seems like um and that is why people aren't getting adequate care, but the people who, like, have that insurance are very grateful for it. Yeah. And people literally sign up to, you know, serve their country, but also to potentially die because they need access to things like medical healthcare and, yeah, you know, government-given salaries and pensions. And yeah. the fact that, like, this is, you know, my soapbox so I work with this population, but the fact that our way of pro- like our largest way of providing those social yeah. services is through people volu- you know, volunteering to join the military is not conscionable in this country. And again, like it's the it's, richest country in the world. Right. And it's like one of those yeah. things where it's like it would be like we're not being idealistic for imagining a future where this doesn't happen. The fact that it does happen should be like unfathomable. Like that should not be like <laughs> something that we can conceive of. Yeah. If, if nothing else, I hope that this podcast doesn't come across as idealistic because we're full <laughs> well aware of all the issues, yeah. and it just there happens to only be a, like a handful of solutions that could actually work. So we're willing to try yeah. those. Yeah. And so I guess like the the last and most obvious actual solution would be Medicare um, or Medicaid for all, the expansion of healthcare free at time of service healthcare to every single mm-hmm. person there's this this like phrase in the like law enforcement community who un- again unfortunately and not fairly are at this point our first responders at the time of mental health crises where mm-hmm. they will put people in to jail for like three hots and a cot they call it you know like a place to sleep and three meals and like perhaps access to the medication that they already knew they needed but could no longer afford. So, like, I just think it's, like, I don't want this to come across as, like, us blaming, like, any group of people for what's going on. Hi, Kimmy. (laughs) It's just that the people who are responding to this now are completely ill-equipped to respond to it. And the solution is to have people actually have health access to healthcare. That's the solution. Yeah, and I also want to say, like, the system itself is dehumanizing for various sides, yes. for both sides yes. so obviously no one should choose to be a cop that's a terrible choice and I don't respect you for making that choice I'm sorry but there it is people who are responding to these things i work on a crisis hotline and the amount that you are asked to do for other people while receiving at times minimal training in those issues or having to refer people to resources that you know are not going to serve them over and over again yeah is like yeah again completely dehumanizing it makes you resent the people asking for help as opposed to the systems that are failing them it makes those people very frustrated at the people who are supposed to be providing help because they've been let down so many times before. And just, I always say like hell is trying to access like services in America when you don't have resources or when you're a survivor of like any sort of trauma. It is not, it is not possible. Like it's not a healthy thing for anyone to either be trying to provide those services when they're Mm -hmm. not there or to be trying to access them when they're not there. I, don't want to, like, overstate how difficult at this point we make accessing even the scant resources that are available and how much more attention and, frankly, money needs to be shifted and diverted towards these resources away, not just from other public programs, but away from, like, the people in our country who have profited off other people. Yeah, Unfairly. universal health care is not yeah. a negotiable thing at this point. And yeah. anyone who argues against it is coming from a place of just immense privilege. And if you yeah. do come from it from that perspective, I, was, I would just ask you to listen to some of the things that we've shared today from our own lives. But mm-hmm. also think about if you were in those situations. And I was so lucky. I, had, I was under the age of 26, so I was on – and I had a parent – two parents, but I had a parents whose health insurance I was on mm-hmm. – and it was very good health insurance. Mm-hmm. And and then you were able to see somebody who wasn't on your insurance. hmm Yep. Mm-hmm. And even then, I was still left extremely traumatized by the experience. Yep. I believe that it slowed my recovery from it. And even if it didn't, it made it incredibly hard for me to... It was just... It was not okay what, like, I saw in the hospital and also yeah. what I... Experienced. Um, experienced. Yep. And the fact that you know people are coming down on the other side of that i think just speaks to probably misinformation and um, a misunderstanding of what is possible and i want to just say the u.s has the resources to do this they're just choosing not to and they're putting them into things that are actively harmful to us and our society instead of Helpful. We don't need more billionaires. We don't need, you know, more weapons in the military. We're yep. good on that front. What we do need is to be taking care of the people in the military and the veterans who are coming out of it. We yep. need to be taking care of the workers who are making billions for these people. Yep. And the fact that that's not how our country currently operates, and it's not how our country is going to operate from the top down in the foreseeable future just makes it so that yep. we have to be very conscious of what we're doing to change those things. And getting involved in, you know, mutual aid or community care or organizing, like, whatever it is for you. That is where we should be putting our attention right now. Mm -hmm. It needs to go beyond November 4th. Like, there needs to be something that we're doing after that and before that, honestly, because maybe we'll do another episode. I think it would be a good thing to do, like, corona six months in, how it's, like, bipolar during all of this. But let me just say it fucking sucks. It fucking sucks to see how many people are being left to die by our state and by our system and knowing that if not for your family's money and resources you would be one of them is heartbreaking so i could be if my mental health crisis happened or if i had another one or if you had one i know meant that you had to be hospitalized right now it would be putting us and our family at extreme risk i don't even think that they're necessarily allowing visitors to inpatient wards right now yeah let's just just say yeah institutionalization doesn't work and especially not during like a highly infectious deadly disease like it doesn't work like people are not meant to be locked Mm. up period sorry ranty but (laughs) <laughs> let's just let's just wrap it up kind of here. Like, if you people, folks, are looking for things that you can do to address this issue now, first, I would check out the resources in the show notes or go to our Facebook, facebook.com plus bipolar by, by coastal, where Anna will be putting all of these resources mm-hmm. and the articles that we're referencing and the eight to abolish, all that stuff. So you're getting educated, right? Then if you want to act, I would look into finding ways to despite the candidate that we currently have in november for the presidential candidate not being a supportive of medicare for all you can still look into what congress people who are up for election or what your local city council mm-hmm. which of them support medicare for all and then phone bank for them unfortunately we can't canvas right now but you can phone bank and um yeah. oh one great way to find out for who, who's um supportive of Medicare for All tends to be the people who the DSAs, the Democratic Socialists of America, support. It's not, like, a weird communist thing. They just happen to, like, they keep track of who supports Medicare for All and oftentimes will endorse them. Or it's a weird communist thing and get involved in it, Get involved, yeah. One of the most helpful things for mental health during this crisis has been just just connecting myself to larger actions. If I hadn't been involved in tenant organizing in my older building, I think I would have, like, it would have been a lot harder to make it through those months there. Yeah, and then I guess the last thing I would say is like if you are again like looking for something volunteer, talk to people who you know who don't have access to health insurance or or might have mental illness, and um also feel free to a- email Anna and I at bypourbycoastal at gmail dot com. If you, if you have questions about anything that we've said, if you tell us where we're wrong, yeah, tell us where we're wrong. Tell us where we didn't go far enough. And obviously, Anna and I only have bipolar disorder, so we can't speak to the experiences of people who have schizophrenia or severe depression, like suicidal depression and stuff like that. Borderline personality disorder. Borderline personality disorder. Anything like that. So, if you have those experiences and you want to share them with Anna and I, and Possibly like come on the podcast or whatever. Like, we'd love we'd to love hear that. from you. And then, i kind of like fully wrap it up. Was say well, last thing you can do is call your local um, mental health uh, hospitals and see if they need anything like a DVD player. <laughs> yeah. I think it would really help. Make your dog a therapy dog. That was the best part of my inpatient. And I asked every single or my, my partial hospitalization, I asked every single day. And they like skipped one of the days that they're supposed to. And it was like, yeah um, make your dog a therapy dog it's so helpful yeah these are you know, awesome awesome steps if you're looking to support Anna and I you can go to patreon.com slash bipolar coastal. Mm-hmm. for five dollars a month you get we've done honestly like way way more bonus episodes than we, we promised four episodes yeah month this month. so we'll do we do extended episodes and then also bonus episodes such as news roundups mm-hmm. uh, we'll do exclusive patreon listener Q&A's mm-hmm. and also just like chatty catch ups about our lives and like little rants that we have mm-hmm. yeah and that is it thank you so much to hannah dorfman who does our music mia thoreau who does our tile art and eb davis who did the portraits of us that you can find on our social media we also have an instagram at my by coastal and our patreon yeah it's they're so good we appreciate the people who support us so much and thank you so much for listening i hope you learned something we sure did. Yeah. Okay, bye, Nanners. Yeah, tear it all down. Build up better. Bye. Bye.